for joining us again for More Than Child's Play, a podcast brought to you by Milestones and Miracles. We are so excited today to welcome a dear friend and colleague of ours, Kelly Benson-Vote. Kelly is the owner of Pediatric Feeding and Speech Solutions. She's also a wife and mom to two boys that keep her life really busy. Just going to tell you a little bit about Kelly's professional background and then We'll tell you some good stuff about how we know her and work together. Kelly received her bachelor's degree in speech pathology and audiology from West Virginia University, go Mountaineers, and her master's degree in speech pathology from Northwestern University in Illinois. She's worked in private practice, hospital settings, outpatient, long-term care, hospice, schools, and early intervention settings. After working with many children in a variety of settings and after having kids of her own, Kelly found a love in the area of pediatric feeding. She is a faculty member for Lactation Education Resources, and she's a graduate of the oral facial myology class with Sandra Holzman. In addition to feeding and swallowing disorders, Kelly also enjoys treating kids with phonological disorders, articulation, dyspraxia, voice, stuttering, and language disorders in kids with developmental delays, cerebral palsy, autism, and a variety of syndromes and genetic disorders. Kelly loves being a speech and language pathologist and is committed to using the most up-to-date clinical approaches and technology techniques with her therapy. She holds licenses in Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland. Um, Lacey and I have personally known Kelly for a number of years and first met her um, when we worked at um, an outpatient hospital setting together, um, treating kids in conjunction with some group sessions. We also um, ran a a parent support group um, back in the day for parents with special needs um, children. And she is, um, in our early intervention setting, I call her the the big dog for feeding problems. When we have a kid that we're really stuck on and is really struggling with feeding, I always tell the parents, oh, we have someone who can fix this. We will will call her in. So um, we're so happy to share um, her with you today and um, to have a chat about some common feeding concerns that I think all of us as um, parents, not just therapists, have. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to sit and share information with you guys. So like Nicole said, you know, a kid doesn't need a diagnosis of a, a feeding or swallowing disorder for there to be concerns with the, in the family. Even Nicole and I, just as moms with our little ones, we had concerns with them, kind of just watching them develop. And, and one thing that a lot of parents struggle with is the picky eater, which we'll talk about later. But first, we just want to chat about why sitting down at the table and not, it is so important as, as kids are growing and developing, why establishing that family mealtime is really important versus just letting them snack and graze all day and eat on the run. Well, mealtimes are so important, um, and they hit on a lot of different areas. First, um, it just really, I think, provides a time for families to sit down and really just decompress from the day, even if it's uh, 20 minutes, um, for everyone to come together and actually sit around the table just to decompress from our daily lives. And really, it's an, it offers an opportunity to really connect with kids and ask how their day was, um, share information, and then really from a, from a speech and language pathologist standpoint, I can't say enough about using mealtimes as language development time, um, time just to take turns and sharing about the day, answering questions. Um, and, and that has, we haven't even hit on the benefits of food yet. So just that family Making time. eye contact, right? <laughs> That's something that a lot of families and kids don't do because they're in front of screens so much anymore. So sitting down at the table with no screen distraction is, I agree, a good time to work on communication and eye contact. Definitely. Yeah, you please use that 20 to 30 minutes a night to uh, put the screens down and put them on the other side of the room, parents and kids both. Yes. What 
what's what's one of the biggest trends that that you see with family meal time? I know in my family, um, it was definitely much easier to do that when they were younger, and now that they are early teenage years with practices and different schedules and people getting home from work at different times. I I have guilt about it because we probably hit, if I'm being honest, two to three times a week where we're actually sitting at the table together for dinner. It's true. I mean, our, our lives right now, I think, are so busy. Uh, like you said, between practices, uh, piano, sports, uh, working late hours, uh, two working parents, all of that. Um, and when I have people come in to me and tell me, you know, no, we don't sit for family meals. We just don't have the time. We have different work schedules. I really ask them to just start at, uh, even on the weekends, if we yeah. can get one family meal or two family meals started together on the weekends, that's a starting point. And then build from there. So if we can pick then one night through the week. Um and it doesn't have to be dinner, I guess. Sometimes we hit it at breakfast. Exactly. And I guess I don't count right. that. Right, exactly. And like I said, 20 to 30 minutes out of the whole day, if we can just find the time to do that. Um, I, and I definitely understand because I have two boys in travel sports and we, uh, two full-time working parents, and it's a crazy life. Um, but from the beginning, we just personally, we have made it a priority to sit for mealtimes. So actually, there are times when we are eating dinner at 930 at night, but, and I have some older kids now, so it's a little bit easier to flex those schedules, but it's just been made a priority Mm -hmm. in our house that sometimes we eat at 6.30, sometimes we eat at 9.30, but it's just, you just really have to make it a priority. Um, But if you don't have a lot of mealtimes going on right now, family mealtimes right now, um, I would suggest just trying to start with a couple a week and then build from there. And and I think you'll see the benefits really quickly. And I think, too, maybe it doesn't have to be – there's five members in, in my family. It doesn't have to be all five every single meal. If I can sit down with the kids – Matt works late a lot of the time, but at least it's me with the kids for 15 to 20 minutes. That's better than nothing, right? Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk for a second about um, something. So this is the the physical therapist just giving an observation that I'm curious what you guys both have something to say about. I know with my own children, and I hear this a lot from families I work with, parents can be very gung-ho about presenting a variety of foods in terms of taste, texture, different ethnic foods. And I know like my own children, they did really well early on um, eating all kinds of things, Greek salad, tilapia, pretty much almost anything I put in front of them. And then we hit this wall where something changes and they just kind of stopped. And honestly, it's um, for one of our children, both in some regards, it's still a struggle in terms of pickiness. Is that common? If so, you know, what age do you see that? What causes that? And I guess for other parents um, who don't want to hit that wall, is there anything we can do to avoid it? Sure. Um, There's definitely a... uh typical picky eating period that often happens in toddlerhood. Um, I think it's important, though, that we don't expect that to happen. But if it does, we don't get too alarmed. And we think, yes, this this can be pretty typical. But through that period of time um, and beyond, there are definitely things I think we can do to help keep it on the right track and get through that picky behavior. Um, just like you mentioned, um, continuing to offer a variety of foods, not to be overwhelming uh, with a variety, but continue the, the rotation of making sure we're always presenting a variety of different foods from different food groups and keep those in the rotation. I think what happens sometimes during that picky period is that uh, ch- children get into um typical food jags, which is maybe a a three-year-old wants to have chicken nuggets 24-7 for two weeks. Um, And that that can be typical, but in a typical picky eater, um, that food may drop out because then they get tired of those chicken nuggets, but then in a couple weeks, you can bring it back in, um, and foods continue to rotate. Um, That changes into more 
of a feeding problem when foods drop out and then you can't bring them back into the rotation. Um, That's what happened in my house. And so, and I think what happens is then we also get into periods where, or phases where we start just to make the foods that we know the kids will eat. Yeah, because it's easy and you're tired. And so what happens during that time is we are playing into those food jags and we're playing into those preferences. And then sometimes we can see the food choices and the food preferences start to decrease. So I guess my next question is, once that happens, what what's the best strategy? And when you have a, a kid who's a picky eater, um, everybody has an opinion on what you should do and how to address it. We've heard, of course, from family members and friends, well, I just wouldn't let them get up from the table until they eat that. Or they'd be hungry and eat that for breakfast. Or I just would make them go hungry. Um, and, you know, obviously that's unique to each family on how they want to handle it. But... Is there, is there a recommended strategy for in behaviorally encouraging getting over that period of not wanting to try things? I think one of the most important things to do is to not make it a battle. And yeah. I think that's what happens a lot of times um, and a lot of tension. It becomes a real control issue. Yeah. Um, and especially... In toddlerhood, picky eating can start during a time in toddlerhood when toddlers are really um, discovering their independence and making choices, and control becomes a big thing for them. And so that's their job, is trying to control their things that are happening in their lives 24-7. And if we make the choice to try to... um, um, engage in that and exert our control over that and not let them have that control and choices, then I'm fearful that we do enter into that battle and it can happen then at the dinner table. And feeding happens so often and it's such a social aspect in our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes up a lot and the more tension, it just uh, becomes a bad cycle then. And then we get the fighting at the dinner table and threats and and different things. So Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is not to engage in a battle and the control because I can guarantee you 98% of the time you are going to lose (laughs) as the parent. The adult is going to lose that battle. Yeah. Um, I know our pediatrician told me, you know, make me a list of foods she's eating. And I did. And she said, this is fine. She has a good height and weight. And this is a variety of foods you don't need to you don't need to worry about it. So in our house what we did and still on a lot of nights do is I make what I make for dinner. Um, you are welcome to it and if you're not welcome to it that's fine. You have to, if you don't want it you can choose something else, but you have to make it yourself then and you have to hit all the food groups in some way. Um, and I don't know that that's really a good strategy. Um, I know that it keeps our picky daughter healthy and growing, and she does eat really nutritious, good foods. Um, I don't like it because I wish socially she would engage with us in everything we're eating, and I wonder as she gets older and social pressures of eating out with friends and things, I'm hoping that will be the motivation for her to finally branch out and try some other things. Um she went to Olive Garden last week and actually had red sauce on her pasta for mm-hmm. the first time. And our whole family basically threw a party because it was so rare um, <laughs> for us. But I don't, I mean, is that, should we do something separate? I mean, in in not engaging with the battle, you still have to make sure they eat enough and a variety of healthy foods to grow. And practically speaking, I know in my house, I'm not making separate food. Right. And and I just want to um, give a reminder out there that we are talking about just the typical picky eater and nothing beyond that at this point. But the kids that come to see me, which they are more problem feeders, but I would say this to the typical picky eater, too, is that um, – My goal isn't to get a a kiddo to go to the buffet and try everything on the buffet. Um, 
I'm probably a little bit of a picky eater too, and I probably wouldn't do that either. But my goal is for kids, just like you said, and your goal for your child is to be nutritionally sound. And to me, that means they're eating at a variety of foods from every food group. Mm -hmm. Of course, unless there are food allergies and things like that. But I definitely want several foods from each food group. So there is some variety. Um, How do you know the difference when it's pickiness and it's, or it's problem? How do you tease out the difference between picky and, and problematic? So just, just for a, a few examples, um, just relating back to I said what I said earlier about food jags. Food jags can be typical in toddlerhood, but they should also be short-lived. Um, if a food jag goes on for a long time and kids start to really decrease their overall variety of foods that they're eating and foods continue to drop out gradually and you can't add them back in, then that definitely is a red flag um, that there's more of a problem there. Uh, kids who are having difficult difficulties transitioning from any textures, so from puree to solids, or they have problems with wet and sticky foods or liquids, anything of that sort, that is a red flag. Um, Toddlers, when we first start feeding them purees, we often get a, a facial grimace or a little bit of gagging going on. That should be very short-lived when we introduce a food. So if you continue to introduce foods and they continue to gag, uh, that is a problem. Um, any, any type of coughing, choking, gagging, of course, on foods would be problematic too. What about, I have, I don't know about you, I have a lot of families when I ask just about general health and nutrition, when I'm going to do an evaluation, they'll say, all he eats is goldfish crackers and chicken nuggets for every single meal. I'm assuming that's problematic. And that is a problem. Exactly. I would agree. Um, We see a lot of kids who do have that diet, chicken nuggets, french fries, and goldfish. And when I see that, I don't know exactly, though, what the problem is. Definitely, it's a limited repertoire of food, and I think it's problematic, and they, I feel like they are nutritionally deficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're drinking a lot of milk on top of that, too, but that's not always a good thing either. It is helping with some of the nutrition. Um, but I also look at the type of foods they're eating, and those foods that you mentioned, particularly chicken nuggets um, and the carb snacks, the goldfish, those things, are very easy to chew and break down. So there's not a whole lot of oral work involved in that. So it also makes me question their oral abilities um, of what foods they can tolerate. And I think too, when the parent reports they're just eating chicken nuggets and goldfish crackers, for example, it's important that we ask, well, are you offering them other things? Because like Kelly said before, once if a kid is in a food jag and then then we suddenly that's all we're offering them, we're not, you know, we're Mm -hmm. not kind of helping them. Sometimes, you know, the parent might need to just offer some more foods to see if it is a problem or if it's just a, a typical picky eater pattern that maybe they would come out of with more exposure. Is that, I mean... Sure. Can that happen? Yeah, we can definitely. And and we just fall into those ruts, you know, Mm -hmm. back to our busy lifestyle. And sometimes we're going through drive-thrus or we're grabbing the frozen things out of the freezer as a quick meal. And those are the things that are easy to grab and Mm -hmm. prepare and just throw on the table because we know they're going to eat it. And then because we know in a half an hour it's bath time and bedtime. So some of it I think we we, Mm -hmm. uh, fall into that rut with convenience, you know, because of convenience of our own schedules. But you're right. I think we just have to stop, take a step back, take a look at what we're offering, what we are modeling. Are we, as the parents, modeling that we're eating healthy foods and a variety of foods from each food group? Because that is Mm -hmm. very, very important. And I think once, Kelly, it was you who, who said to me, look, Every restaurant you eat out at has the same kids' menu. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's noodles, 
plain or with sauce. It's chicken nuggets. It's a hot dog. It's a hamburger. Quesadilla. It doesn't matter where mm-hmm. you're eating. Right, a quesadilla maybe. My kids like salad. They always want a salad, but there's never a salad on the kids' menu, so I have to pay for an adult side salad, which they don't eat. But, I mean, so, like, society, right, has, has pushed this kind of on parents. This is what your kids should be eating. This is our kids' menu. This is what we have for you. Well, you they're know? serving so it, their population, too. I and mean, that, too. That if they too. have families that have kids that just eat, buttered noodles, then they're going to serve buttered noodles. Yes, you're exactly right. And that's a good point because I really suggest um, to people that when they do go out to restaurants, just skip the kids' menu. Don't ask for it. Um, Yes, the meals are a little bit more expensive, but you can either split them or take half of it home. Uh, I have definitely done that. When we go out to restaurants, I've told my kids they can't order something off the kids' menu, that they have to order something off Mm -hmm. the adult side. So right. what I'm hearing you say is the pickiness could come from a variety of things. It could be oral motor um, concerns. It could be texture, sensory issues. It could be behavioral or preference from the environment and what's offered. And could it be sort of metabolically if they if they are sensitive or aversive to something? Do you ever see them avoiding things that their body doesn't tolerate well? Absolutely. And really, we're seeing increases in food allergies and um, and, and different disorders such as eosinophilic esophagitis, which is um, an allergy that occurs within the esophagus. But the testing, you need to go to a gastroenterologist to delve into that more. But just in general, though, we're seeing more numbers of this. And it's different than, you know, even when we were kids or our parents were growing up, we just didn't either, we didn't have this information, but I don't think we had as many of these disorders and problems back then either. So So why the increase? uh, Good question. (laughs) Um, Do we know why? I don't oh. think we do. Okay. Um, and But it just goes to show that we can't just um, sit our kids at the table and say, eat this, uh, you you know, stay at the table until you eat this until it's gone. Yeah. Um, we just can't use the same techniques that our parents right. used and even that, you know, were used on us before. So I tried that once and she vomited on the table and I, I cried and said, <laughs> I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So... What we did was we talked about food groups and we talked about what each food group did for your body in terms of energy or your eyes or your muscle strength. And we made a list of every food she would eat in each of those food groups. And I put them on the fridge and we used my plate too, just as a visual. Um, This is when she was like three or four. And that's when I started to say, you know, where's your protein? Where's your vegetable? And she had to build her own plate if she wasn't going to eat what we were eating. Um, And again, it's not ideal. It's not what I wanted. But I was happy with the choice that she would pick lettuce or spinach with nothing on it as her vegetable and raw almonds as her protein. If she didn't want to eat what we were eating for dinner, that was okay with me because at least it was a healthy choice. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of nights we still do that um, because – but at least I my goal is that she had an education of food as fuel mm-hmm. and, and, and that she was checking off the areas to make sure she got what her body needed versus I just want you to eat this because you're going to and you're not getting up um, until you do. Right. And I think you are touching on some of the kids, actually, that I see – that are more problematic feeders <laughs> that, um, you know, and, and I love the idea how you just described about talking through it and with a ch- taking a cognitive approach. And mm-hmm. I do that as well with the older kids that I see of, you know, the fuel for your body and what makes it healthy and what makes our food or our bodies feel good. Um, but there are the, some kids that, I mean, I could talk for two days about that and they say, yes, I want to to do that. I want to be healthy. They know cognitively exactly what they should do. But when the food is presented to them, they just cannot do it. And that is a red flag to me that something more serious is going on that we need to take a deeper look at, maybe through actually a feeding evaluation 
and um, some more evaluation about what's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of things that can be going on particularly in the GI tract, that we can't see on the outside. Mm -hmm. And the only symptom we see on the outside is picky eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there are a lot of hidden things there. And so when um, when folks come in to me, I tell them, you know, we can try this this approach that I have, and it may include some behavioral techniques. But if things aren't changing in you know four weeks or six weeks or something like that. I'm going to suggest probably even harder for them to go to a gastroenterologist to get checked out because the last thing I want to do is use be- a behavioral approach with a child who is struggling. And they may do things just to please me or to please mom and dad or to get that sticker or to get a prize, but it's only for that reason. And, yeah. we, can- and we might be missing something that's going on in the-, in the GI tract. And I think it's so hard for parents. You know, they... They want their kids to be healthy. I think there's an instinctual thing as a mother to feed your child and want to make sure that your child is getting the nutrition they need. And there's a lot of outside opinions about, well, when I was, when you were a kid, we did it this way, or, you know, they they won't starve. They'll eat when they're hungry. And there's a, there are a lot of strong opinions in our culture about how we should feed children. You, you're right. You're exactly right. And actually, I want to, um, on that note, I will touch upon uh, another feeding therapist that I follow a lot. And she just actually um, had a, a piece on a YouTube video on her site that I'll refer people to about um, that with people saying, oh, um, they won't starve. And it can, that can be such a false statement. Um, anyway, that, that feeding therapist's name is Melanie Potok. She has a, um, a website called mymunchbug.com. Um, she's a great resource for some feeding therapy and ideas. But um, she also just did something on this the other day. And, and, it's, and it's true. I mean, in feeding therapy in particular, we do see kids that will starve themselves or mm-hmm. will end up in the emergency room dehydrated mm-hmm. because they are not going to eat. Because like you said earlier, their bodies, there is something going on with their bodies that will not let them eat that particular food. So it really can be, it can get into a dangerous situation. And when we talk even about that word starvation, um, it doesn't have to be that they just stop eating. It can be that they just can gradually continue to decrease the food repertoire. So then they get to the point where they're only eating those carbs. And like I said, um, I, I kind of like the term um, nutritionally malnourished mm-hmm. because I really do think it exists. I and think there's a lot of kids that are are nutritionally definitely. Nourished. And, and and I've had kids that come in who are at fine weight or even overweight, and the pediatricians haven't been concerned at all because all they're doing is looking at the numbers. But yet the parent comes to me and the child is eating maybe three or maybe five foods, mm. and that's, that's a problem. A problem yeah. What do you think, what are your thoughts on convenience eating for kids, specifically toddlers? There's a lot of pouches. There's a lot of, uh, like you said, we're on the go, you know, a lot of things in containers that don't require a lot of... Snacky stuff, puffs and stuff. Yes. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) Uh, and, And I think, again, I think you're right that it stems from our busy lifestyles. It's very easy to grab a pouch and hand it into the, hand it back to the child in the back seat for their snack. And I, I see parents come in and they, they feel like it's okay that their child may be eating five to ten pouches a day because some of these pouches have some cool mixes, quinoa and spinach, or, you know, they're getting some kind of variety, which I like that variety, but it's also in a puree form. Right. I, I've seen five-year-olds um, sustaining themselves on pouches. Really? So five-year-olds are still having pouches? Absolutely. Those and they, pouches fit really well in lunch boxes. And, you got you to well, get Well, if you think about it, I was trying to think the other day when this all started, and I remember it was applesauce. It's applesauce yeah. pouches. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a lot of people, I think, are sending those in lunch boxes, like yes. you said, Lacey. Yes. Um, 
in whatever age, which is okay. I mean, I think here and there it's okay. You know, suck down your applesauce and, and, you know, I can live with that. But there, like you said, it's being used for convenience oftentimes. Um, We, I think, are losing some self-feeding skills when you just suck your meal out of a pouch. Like Um, the infant that should be learning how to use a spoon. Exactly. Baby food is in a pouch, so we just pop the pouch in their mouth instead of learning those early spoon feeding skills, correct? Right, right. So, um, yeah, the convenience feeding, I think, uh, is is a problem. So maybe just use, from the parent who's listening and saying, well, okay, therapist, that's that's great, but I have four kids and seven practices, and maybe the take-home message is, in moderation, in small amounts, not as your go-to norm every day, or avoid it all the time. I would try to avoid it. We didn't use pouches 10 years ago. Right. We mm-hmm. didn't grow up on pouches. No. Um, and Even our children didn't. No. And our kids are, You're right. you know, between 10 and 14-ish, 15-ish. And if we have the pouches, if you if you need to use them at home or when you're out and you like a certain common food combination that's in them, put it into a spoon and give your, uh, I'm sorry, put it into a bowl, give your child a spoon and let them eat it out of the bowl like a normal food. Then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I, I feel like I see this observation a lot with some families is, you know, t- when I ask, tell me about your meal time, and um, I see a trend in not wanting them to get dirty, not wanting to make a mess with food. Does, do messes matter? Should we want our kids to to have that messy feeding experience? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> messes do matter. And I think when we try to avoid the mess uh, and we're always cleaning up after each bite and we're cleaning their lips with the spoon each bite, um, I think it's it's creating some of this defensive behavior we see in kids with foods and not wanting to get sticky, not being okay with being dirty. I have kids that I teach them how to lick food off of their finger because they don't know how to do that. And so I think if, if you can't touch a food or um, if you can't tolerate yeah. it on your finger— it's gonna it's gonna be hard for some kids to put that food in their mouth. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Which is an even more sensitive area. So messy. Uh, That's good. Feeding is a messy routine, especially when we're first starting out with infants. It it's messy and it should be messy. And right. and I encourage uh, parents to really just roll with it and try to have as much fun with that as possible. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't promote tossing spoons on the floor or throwing food across the the room <laughs> but at least allowing that mess on, on the tray, tray mm-hmm. and on their hands and not not wiping their hands off each time you know immediately when they get messy that's good to know let's talk about um the pacifier the binky um good bad should we encourage it when should it come when should it go what what are the effects of keeping it too long are there is there an effect on feeding is there an effect on speech what do, what do parents need to know about the pacifier so i am okay with pacifiers um there are definitely some benefits to pacifiers if kids like them there are definitely benefits to infants with pacifiers um preemies for calming um, babies who are refluxing, sometimes the pacifier can help with reflux because it helps to re-swallow. Uh, it definitely can be helpful for some kids for calming. Uh, the problem comes in, I feel, when we just use them too long. Um, they can affect speech development. They can affect feeding. They can affect the dentition. So I think pacifiers... Um, should be used, you know, if you can get rid of it by a year, I think that's great. Uh, by two years, that's great too. Um, and just make sure that we're using pacifiers for their purpose during that period. So I really don't like to see toddlers walking around with pacifiers hanging out of their mouths, uh, just like a sippy cup. But <laughs> we'll stay on pacifiers now. But um, because how are they supposed to talk? with a pacifier in their mouth. So Mm -hmm. I do think it affects their speech and language development um, when it's always present. So, But using it for calming or using it to go to sleep and then making sure that it stays in the crib or stays in the bed, I think is a great practice. Mm -hmm. 
And I didn't know. I mean, as a new mom, I didn't know. You know, they market the pacifiers for four to six months and six to nine months. And I, I thought that you have an older kid, you need a different pacifier. Um, not necessarily. Um, you know, I ha- there are lots of different types of pacifiers out there made of different things, different shapes, and the different companies. And I've heard that the thinner ones are better for the palate. Is that right? It depends on who you talk to. Okay. It depends on which dentist you talk to. It depends on the company and their marketing. Um, I really think for pacifier use, it depends on the baby. Okay. Some babies like a certain shape. Some people can keep a cer- some babies can keep a certain shape in their mouths. Others can't. Just like bottles. Yeah, exactly. There are tons of different kinds. So, if I have the choice with a baby, if they're if they're going to do a pacifier, and we have a choice, I like the straight type. Um, usually, most people are, are familiar with the Soothe brand. Yeah. I think that shape makes the most sense for what we want the tongue to do during sucking. Um, so personally, I like that one. But if a child does better or prefers the, like the nook shape or the orthodontic shape, then I'm not going to go in and try to change that unless okay. there's a problem. Okay. So what about sippy cups? Same thing. So many options. Should they even... Do you recommend going to a sippy cup from the bottle or yeah, the breast? Yeah, let's back up. Okay, let's just make this very clear. Using the sippy cup is not a developmental milestone. I know I just blew you all away with that, but, right? <laughs> like society, and, and this SLP mom included, until I did my own research, society makes us think that drinking out of the sippy cup is a milestone, right? Like they have the bottle and then from there they go to the sippy cup before they can go to an open cup. Why would we, you know, we need that sippy cup in transition, but in reality, you don't even need the sippy cup. It was created for convenience reasons, but now we feel like it's a necessity to development, but it's not, right, Kelly? Exactly, it's not. And and you're right about the convenience because it's no spill most mm-hmm. of the time. So it's easy to, to just grab those sippy cups and move forward. Um, in my practice, I I do not recommend any sippy cups. I recommend that kids, um, I, I teach cup drinking and straw drinking before one year old. So I would suggest going from breast or bottle straight to straw drinking and open cup drinking. How early can a, can a baby drink from a straw? Um, I can start... Seven months, okay. eight months, I can teach straw drinking to most kids. Um, so I would suggest skipping the sippy cups altogether. And we're talking about like the spout kind of cups. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cups that are no spill that I think are more appropriate, like the 360 cups that were kind of like a cup edge, and they are no spill. So there we've got our convenience back yes, <laughs> for the right, parents. Right. What, what, what's the downfall of the sippy cup? Why don't we like the sippy cup? It's, it's the way that the <laughs> tongue moves. And when you drink from a sippy cup, the tongue uh, works in the same fashion that it does on a bottle nipple. So it's an immature type of suck. And we want to move that child forward to a more mature sucking pattern with the right muscles. And so straw drinking and open cup drinking are much better for that. They make your oral motor muscles stronger. Yep. And develop and, and, and also to help keep us on that typical track of oral development Mm -hmm. so that we don't have the feeding problems and maybe the speech problems down the road. I think, I think too, if you're not a speech therapist, it's kind of like a aha moment. Oh, all this, all this feeding stuff, all this, my baby puts everything in their mouth, all this learning to use a spoon and using a pacifier and learning to drink from a straw, it strengthens the right muscles for speech. Correct? Yes. And we're all connected. I mean, all these parts are connected. So feeding, there are relationships between feeding development and speech development and what the tongue is doing and how the mouth is being held. I don't think we always think about our tongue and and our cheeks as muscles. We think about their core and their neck and their back. Maybe I do because I'm a PT. But parents, I think, know that their babies need to play to get their body strong, but I don't know that they think about their mouths getting strong or coordinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And when they come in, and I, I see a, a lot of kids come in who are um, developmentally really should be on solids but never transitioned well from purees to solids. So they're still on eating mostly smooth puree foods or sucking their foods out of a pouch. And they come in with these nice, cute cheeks and the parents you know think they're very cute which they are but my response though is that they're kind of nice and cute and pudgy because they're inactive they've been inactive Mm -hmm. and they're just not in they're not developing those muscles of the mouth they're through chewing and biting and mouthing and all of those good skills so it's something that we actually have to work on that's interesting Mm -hmm. what what do you wish every parent knew about feeding if you could send them home with, like, a postcard from the hospital, <laughs> from the get-go. <laughs> do this, don't do this. Wow. Yeah. Oh. This. Um, some of the things that pop in my mind is it is good and healthy to allow kids to mouth. So um, good mouthing. So in infancy, you know, not too long after you get them home from the hospital, they'll be bringing their fists to their mouth and starting to mouth their fists and then their fingers and then maybe the pacifier if you use a pacifier. Um, and then it moves on to toys and mouthing toys and it gets more, it, gets, it goes actually from a non-discriminate mouthing period to discriminate mouthing to where their fingers and certain parts of toys are going in the mouth. That is all really, really healthy, good development that helps kids stay on a typical track um, of oral development. And then really um, sticking to a plan of, of trying to stick to a plan of offering the the age-appropriate foods at the right times. So still the recommendation is four to six months, we start to introduce puree foods. But then quickly, you know, in a few months after that, we're starting to introduce soft solids and dissolvables and really continuing to develop that mouth so that by the time they're one, they're they're already eating some solids and they're ready to transition on to mostly table foods as well as skipping the sippy cup, getting on straw drinking an open cup um, early on. And then one of the biggest pet peeves I have that I would love to share with everyone is to get out of our minds that every time we leave the house, we have to have Ziploc baggies full of snacks. The French don't do that. (laughs) I think, you know, at any given moment, I think I can probably grab a parent on the sidewalk and they have a bag of goldfish or they have some cereal or crackers or something in the diaper bag because they cup full of milk right? or milk yeah. because they think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be gone from the house for two hours. I've got to take a snack. Hungry. There's a book. I said the French don't do that because there's a book by an American who moved to France. And I can't think of the title of it right now, but she compared parenting in both cultures. And that was one of the things she said is when I come back, my friends are always carrying around snacks. And I don't do that in Europe. You know, it, when it's mealtime, we eat. And when it's not, we don't. Right. And that's so true. And and that's where I think our kids are eating all of these. They're getting full because they're grazing all day. They're grazing all day. They're eating these carbs. We have these low or no nutritional foods that they're eating all day for snacks. And some of the times, some of the picky eaters that I see are coming and The first recommendation I tell parents is if they are grazing in between meals to cut out that grazing and stretch meal times and snack times not so not letting a child eat two to two and a half hours prior to a mealtime or drink for that month. Yeah, and because they have no hunger motivation if they're grazing all day. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's little simple tricks like that. Mm -hmm. Is there Is there a problem if kids don't ever really get into purees? Like if they go straight from breast or bottle to soft solids and and regular solids, is that a problem? Um, There is a... A trend now. Um, My kids kind of did that. I mean, they ate some baby foods, but they never really liked them. Um, Baby-led weaning is a trend right now um, that that's, that's kind of the idea that a lot of babies, they're skipping the puree stage and going to solids. 
Um, I think there are benefits in going through that puree stage. I think there are benefits in the getting messy, in learning to self-feed, to hold the spoon, to scoop, bring it to your mouth. Um, if a child doesn't like purees and they like solids much better, like your kids, it, that's fine. I mean, you don't have to stay on purees a long time or any period of time. Some, but but I think it's an important stage. Um, for kids to go. I think there are benefits for kids to go through that stage, even for a brief time for period. experiences. Tell us a little bit about your business. It's in Leesburg, right? Right. I have a private practice in Leesburg, um, Pediatric Feeding and Speech Solutions, where I see um, kids of all ages, and I see feeding disorders as well as speech and language disorders. And what, what do you think drew you to feeding specifically as an SLP? Um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really didn't have a lot of this training in my undergrad or graduate studies. Um, it's just an area after I graduated and started seeing kids, I started seeing this as an area of concern, and it seems to be a growing area of concern. Yeah. And I don't know. I just uh, I just fell in love with it, really. And now, and you're busy, so obviously there's a lot of kids that there are. Tell us like about some of the different kids you see. Beyond, are there things beyond picky eating or problem eating kids? Yeah, I see a range of, of kids at my office. I see ones who are more typical picky eaters. I see ones who are definitely have feeding more feeding disorders. I have kids with multiple uh, food allergies. I have kids um, with other diagnoses, such as eosinophilic esophagitis that I mentioned earlier. I have kids with feeding tubes. So there's a whole host of uh, feeding-related issues that I see. Um, and so, you, like we said, you are in Leesburg. If families want are local and want to reach you or learn more about your services, how can they find you? Um, I have a website, which is Pediatric Feeding and Speech Solutions. So uh, I have information on the site there. My bio is on there, and I have contact information there. Um, email is the best way to get in touch. There is a link on my website, but my email address is kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at pediatricfeedingandspeech.com. I also have a business Facebook page that folks can contact we'll link, that way. We'll link that when we post this podcast. If, if um, we do have an audience throughout the country and, and some viewers internationally, if someone's listening and they're not in this area and they, they feel like they could benefit from a speech language pathologist who specializes in feeding, is there is there a website somewhere or, or feeding specialist database in any form? Um, I think how there, can they find someone in their community? I know for PT, like if you want a, a therapist who's specialized in a certain method, or even just a pediatric person, APTA offers like I don't know if ASHA does that. The Physical Therapy Association, you can search and find pediatric therapists in your area, and you can you can even specialize like if you want a women's health specialist or. Does Asha do that for you guys? No. I think probably just contacting an, an SLP in your area and asking them, do you work with kids with feeding problems? Like, you know, do you have anyone to reference me to? Might just right. be the best. And ask s specific questions about their experience mm -hmm. with pediatrics and with feeding disorders specifically. Um, there is a group, uh, Feeding Matters, and they do have a database of some people. Um, I don't know how large it is, though, you know, how far it covers. But um, or definitely, I mean, folks can always contact me and I can help reach out to other therapists um, in other areas that and I know of, too. we should probably mention, too, there are some OTs that are feeding um, specialists as well. So in certain communities, you may find an OT that has the area... It's always kind of hard for me to explain how that overlaps. You know, it really, I think, too, depends on um, where they trained yeah. and um, yeah, the I, emphasis of Yeah, my husband's an OT, and he got 
zero feeding. Yeah, I think actually school. on the West Coast, maybe they're, they do a little bit more, OTs have more feeding experience than as compared to East Coast. Or there's different areas in the country, I think, where pockets where you can see different training backgrounds. But I think for the, the person who's looking for some help, um, uh, definitely just contacting a local therapist and asking specific questions about feeding and their experience with feeding. And also for parents to keep in mind, too, if you are sensing a problem at all, it's always easier and better to call and ask for help earlier rather than later. Do you find pediatricians wait? I do. Um, a lot of times they wait and they say that they'll grow out of it. Um, but I'm here to tell you also that I have seen 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds who are eating the same diet as they did as a toddler. Well, and like you said earlier, the pediatricians are really just looking at their growth curve. So if the kid is growing and, and their average weight, average height, it, the pediatrician's probably not going to be as, you know, they're not going to be, they're not going to advocate for the parent to look beyond for help. It, you know, so as a parent, we need to educate ourselves and advocate for our kids sometimes beyond maybe what the pediatrician's recommending. Exactly. I think the pediatricians don't just delve into that area real deeply. So if there's no concern voiced by the parent uh, and the numbers look good on the growth yeah. curve, then nobody's concerned. But I do think parents, um, you know, a lot of times in their gut feel that there is a problem. And really, a simple question, if mealtimes are stressful at your house or if you're avoiding mealtimes, that's, that's a problem. That's, uh, yeah. that's enough to seek out some help. Even ask questions. I mean, people will come to me and ask questions if it's a problem, and I will be very honest with you and tell you this is just a picky eating, picky eater situation. Here are some recommendations. Um, if that doesn't help, then we'll, we'll meet again and, and work on this. But I'll be very honest to tell you when I think therapy is needed or not. And it, like I said, it's much easier to ask questions and seek help, help when the child is younger rather than older. Because the older child, it, those behaviors and those patterns just get more deeply ingrained over time. And it's really hard to change later on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that personally. Well, are we missing anything else, girls? Have we left anything out? I don't think so. Kelly, thank you so much for meeting with us. Um, when we started this podcast, Lacey and I made a list of target people on our list that we wanted to hit. And you were our first person that we wanted to have. So we're so happy that it worked out because you're just um, full of information that's really important for families. Mealtime should be fun and the time for bonding and we know for a lot of families it's not so we're hoping that um, this information that Kelly shared today will help you and we thank you for listening in um, always remember you can find us at milestonesandmiracles.com we have a bunch of things that are helpful for families there you can find one two three just play with me whether you're a parent or a professional as a resource or a gift um, we have links to our continuing education courses through MedBridge Education, and um, a blog full of information on topics that might interest you. I think we even had Kelly guest blog a time or two. Yeah, so if we you could go to the post blog those. We could post and those. And search for Kelly's name. I think a couple blogs will will pop up for you. And Some we'll more information. Include, we'll include the resources that she mentioned, um, her website, and the blog that she did for us when we post this, so that it'll be convenient and and there for our listeners. Okay. So thanks for joining us.